0: All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. As you're making your way back to your seats, let me be the first to say happy last day of the year. We're closing out 2023 today, and I hope over the last week that you uh, have enjoyed a very restful Christmas with people that you care about. And I hope that you got to enjoy my favorite part of this time of year, which is really good food. Right? There's just something about this time of year that forces all of us to up our food game, whether it's baking copious amounts of cookies, making candies, or just making really nice meals. There's just something about it. And like this is such a thing that for the last couple years, Kristen and I have decided that on Christmas Day, we're going to make a really nice dinner. We have a relaxing morning with the kids, but we've decided we're going to make a really nice dinner. And we're going to invite some people over to enjoy it with our family. And of course, and making a really nice dinner means making loads and loads of dirty dishes too. But once you get through all of that, it's a great time to just sit around a table with people we care about. Screens are off. Phones are down. There's usually a little bit of music going in the background. And we just enjoy really good food with people that we care about. And it's all less stressful and less chaotic than a full Thanksgiving meal. And as Kristen and I were talking about it over a couple of weeks, deciding what we were going to make and who we were going to invite, I got curious, like, why do we as people always celebrate things with food, right? And I think, I think if we're honest, the, the best celebrations always involve food of some sort. Think about it weddings, birthdays, baby showers, anniversaries, graduations, any sort of accomplishment, celebrating the end of semester, lamenting the end of summer, all of these reasons, we find any reason we can to gather with other people around a meal. And it feels like gathering around the table with people we care about is something that's deeply ingrained in us. And while your Christmas traditions, I'm sure, look very different than mine, I'm willing to bet that at some point over the last week or over the last week and a half, two weeks, there was a fair amount of food involved as well as some other people. And so as I kept thinking about this, because my brain had a hard time letting go of it, I did what all of us do when we get curious about something. I turned to Google. And the first article that Google sent me said this. It said, food is an important part of any celebration in all nations of the world, regardless of culture or religion. It can unite and strengthen community bonds, and it helps to maintain a common identity among a group of people. And so the reason that we celebrate with food runs much deeper than just finding a reason to enjoy the foods that we like. It's about remembering the past and uh, anticipating the future with the people that we're connected to. Now, the reason that I bring all of that up is because today, like Jerry said, we are going to take communion as a church family. And this is a meal that the church has shared together for thousands of years. But before we get there, we need to talk about why we celebrate the meal of communion. And to do that, we're going to walk through a passage, and an encounter with Jesus, actually, in Luke chapter 24. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and make your way there. Now, if you're a little curious why we're jumping to the end of Luke's gospel as we're wrapping up our Advent series, um, it's because of this. Over the last couple of weeks, we've spent most of our time in Luke chapter two, where we look at the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And we've looked specifically at what Jesus' presence brings with him. And in week one, we saw that Jesus' presence brings hope with him. Week two, we saw his presence comes with comfort, and joy. And last week, we saw that his presence comes with peace. And the reason that we're focusing on his presence is because of a prophecy made over 700 years before he was born by the prophet Isaiah when he said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And even though Christmas was about a week ago, we're still in an Advent series. Because you see, from the time that Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of his Father, all of creation has been in a uh, prolonged season of Advent as we expectantly wait for his second coming. But that's getting a little ahead of things. Today, we're jumping into Luke chapter 24. And starting in verse 13, Luke writes, Now that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now we need to stop right here and ask a few questions because we're jumping into the middle of a longer story that Luke has been writing. And so the first question we need to ask is, what day is it? Because Luke just assumes that his reader knows, well, it's resurrection day. This encounter with Jesus that these two are about to have happens on the very day that Jesus walked out of that tomb. And so our next question is, well, who are these two, right? If these two have an encounter with Jesus on the day that he rose from the dead, they must be pretty important, right? Well, these two were two of his disciples. We don't know a lot about them. We just know from what they say that they were two of his followers. They just weren't part of the inner 12 that we know the most about. And so our last question is well, then what on earth are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the events of the last week. The triumphal entry as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people cried out, Hosanna. Perhaps they're talking about the Last Supper. They're certainly talking about the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus. They're likely talking about Jesus' confrontation with the mob that came to arrest him in the garden, as well as the joke of a trial that he was forced through. And obviously, they're talking about his unexpected death. And so now that we're all on the same page, now that we're all caught up with these disciples, let's continue. Verse 15: As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And so here are these two disciples walking and processing through a very eventful week in Jerusalem when this random guy who they think is a total stranger just walks up and interrupts their conversation. And when we read this, it makes us wonder why they didn't recognize Jesus. If they really were two of his followers and they heard him teach and they saw the miracles that he performed, shouldn't they have recognized him right away? But Luke, when he writes that they were kept from recognizing him, is pointing to the fact that God was up to something. And as we're about to see, these two disciples were in a state of confusion and sorrow. And as they walked along, they were discussing and trying to make sense of everything that had happened that week and the things that they remember Jesus saying, the things they remember him teaching, the miracles they remember him performing. And that's when Jesus showed up. No, they didn't realize that it was him, but he showed up when they needed him most. And as we close out 2023, maybe you can resonate with these two disciples. Maybe your year hasn't gone the way you hoped or the way you anticipated it would. Maybe you're hurting from the loss of a loved one or the, or the loss of a relationship or you're anxious because of an unexpected medical diagnosis, or you're fearful because of uncertainty surrounding your job as you go in to the next year. And maybe you're dealing with any uh, anything like that, and you're walking along trying to make sense of everything that's happened this year, and you can't quite see that Jesus is with you. You're just hoping that he'll make himself known to you. And as somebody who has experienced it, Myself, let me tell you, it can be really hard to carry on when you don't see God with you the way that you have before. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we need to remember his very words because scripture says that he will always be with us. In fact, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And so as they walk along, Let's look at how Jesus approached them, right? He could have come in with a blinding light and made his presence known to these two and everyone else on the road, but instead, just like on that first Christmas night, he showed up in a very unexpected way. And he just asked a simple question. What are you guys talking about? And it stops these two dead in their tracks. They were completely shocked that someone who they thought had been in Jerusalem for the Passover could have missed everything that happened, And look at how Cleopas, one of these two disciples, answered Jesus' question. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? Now, to be fair, I doubt he would have asked the question that way if he knew exactly who he was talking to. So I think we can give him a little bit of grace. But Jesus' response, though, is great. What things? Right? Like, it's a little comical. Cleopas asks this borderline rude question that seems to be full of sarcasm And Jesus just plays right along with it. He just plays dumb as if he doesn't even know what's going on. And if I'm Cleopas, at this point, I'm walking away from this conversation out of frustration. But fortunately, I'm not. And these two disciples start to tell Jesus his own story. Verse 19, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. And so in response to Jesus, these two disciples start to explain their understanding of all of these events. They say, Jesus was a prophet from Nazareth. He taught with authority and he performed amazing miracles and he carried out his ministry with integrity in front of God and all people, no matter who they were. He treated everybody the same, but then the Jewish religious rulers betrayed him and had him killed. And they even go so far as to say that they had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. They had hoped that he was the promised Messiah that Isaiah spoke about over 700 years before and that Daniel and Ezekiel and Joel and all the other prophets had spoken about too. But when he wasn't found alive by the women or Peter and John, they lost hope. And you see, if you step back and you look at what they're saying, they have all of the right pieces. They just... Can't figure out how everything quite fits together. And so Jesus, as if to say, Oh, guys, you still don't get it, calls out their misunderstanding in verse 25. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, foolish here doesn't have the sense of moronic or lack of intelligence, but of just simply missing the point. And slow to believe suggests a failure to orient around Jesus' teaching. Basically, he looks at these two, and Jesus is saying that they've failed to fully grasp the ways of God. And the truth is, these two disciples likely knew the Old Testament far better than any of us. They knew the stories of Moses. They knew the stories in Genesis. They knew the prophecies from Isaiah and all the others that one day a Messiah would come and redeem God's people. They just misunderstood how he was going to do it. And what Luke tells us is that Jesus went back to the beginning. He went all the way back to the book of Genesis and then worked his way through Israel's history and all of their scriptures to explain what God had been doing all along. And remember, this was a 7-mile hike across <clears throat> Excuse me. This was a 7-mile hike across an unpaved road with significant elevation changes all along the way. It would take at least half a day to get from Jerusalem all the way to Emmaus. Jesus had plenty of time to explain all of this to them. Now, unfortunately, Luke doesn't give us the exact lesson that Jesus taught. But here's what the Bible scholar NT Wright says about Jesus' response. His answer, to be sure, was a radical redefinition of the redemption of Israel. It brought the entire expectation into a new focus. The story of the Bible as a whole had been rushing forward toward the events of his death and his resurrection. And I think this is why they were kept from recognizing Jesus, so they would have this very conversation, so that Jesus could show them what everyone had missed. For weeks, we've been talking about the fact that the name Emmanuel means God with us. It's only used three times in the entire Bible. Two of them in Isaiah and one of them in Matthew when he's actually quoting Isaiah. But the evidence of God's desire to be with his people can be found on every single page. From the very moment that Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden, God had a plan to be with his people And what Jesus made clear on the road to Emmaus that day was now there is a way for God to be with his people because of Jesus' finished work. And by the time Jesus finished, what had to be the mother of all Bible studies, this trio reaches Emmaus, and Luke tells us that the sun was setting, evening was coming in, and Jesus acted as if he was just going to continue walking on into the night until these two invited him in to stay. Now, this was a normal custom in the first century because of the dangers of traveling by foot at night. But it was also a normal custom because their culture so highly valued hospitality. And so when you would invite someone to stay the night with you, it was customary and almost expected really to make a meal and share with these people. But there's also the fact that Jesus was completely reshaping the way these two understood what God had been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And if you were in that spot, wouldn't you want that conversation to continue? Wouldn't you want to hear more about how God had been working throughout all of history to come to redeem his creation? And it's worth noting also here that Jesus didn't force his way in and he didn't demand a place to stay or that a meal be made. He just waited to be invited. And the truth of the matter is, he is just as patient today. He won't force a relationship on anyone, but he desires to be invited into a relationship by everyone. And so as these three traveling companions recline at the table for what was certainly a common Jewish evening meal, we find the climax of Luke's story. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talk, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? In these few verses, there's a lot going on. First of all, apparently the resurrected Jesus is now able to teleport, which is pretty cool. Uh, But secondly, this is the first meal that's described after the resurrection. And that may not sound like it's a big deal, but but it really is. In fact, most of the time meals are written about in the Bible. They're there for a reason and they hold some level of significance. Think about the meal that Abraham made for the three visitors who told him, told him and Sarah that they were going to have a son in a year, even though they were beyond the age to have kids. Or think about the time that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Or the two feasts that Esther threw for King Xerxes and for Haman. Or think about the fact that Jesus provided food for thousands of people with a handful of fish and a couple slices of bread twice. And then, of course, there's the Last Supper, which most of us know pretty well. But there's also Acts chapter 10, where Peter stays with and has a meal with a Roman military official and his family. And this is just to to mention a few. And so this begs the question, what's so important about this common meal On the day Jesus rose from the dead. well, to answer that, we actually need to go back to Genesis chapter three. Genesis three says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Did you see it? Did you, do you see the similarities in the pattern? Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and their eyes were opened. Eve took fruit, she ate it, she gave it to her husband, he ate it and their eyes were opened. And all of the death and the decay we experience can be traced all the way back to that very moment, that moment when this married couple decided not to trust God. And from that moment on, all of creation was subject to decay, sorrow, chaos, and hopelessness. But that evening in Emmaus, 2,000 years ago, we find the first meal of the new creation. Jesus had defeated death itself, and God's new creation was exploding with life and joy and new possibilities, has burst into a world affected by death, decay, death and sorrow. And all of this was wrapped up in a common, everyday, run-of-the-mill Jewish dinner with just a few people sitting around a table together. It sounds a little bit like that night in Bethlehem, doesn't it? Jesus showed up unexpectedly with a couple of really confused people who were doing the best that they could to honor God as they walked along. I love what Scottish pastor and theologian William Barclay said about the meal on Emmaus. He said, it's not only at the communion table we can be with Christ. We can be with him at the dinner table too. Look, eating together was a symbolic action of Jesus' people in the early church. Yes, it strengthened their relationships. And yes, it helped maintain a common identity. But it was also a place where all were welcome. And even though Jesus wasn't physically present with them, this meal was an act of remembering and celebrating what Jesus had accomplished. In 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul wrote, wrote that Jesus destroyed death. He led God's people out of slavery and now invites us to join him in, on the journey to the new promised land, to redeemed and restored creation. And when we take communion, when we share in this meal that the church has practiced for thousands of years, we remember what Jesus endured so we could be set free from slavery to sin. We celebrate that he's conquered death once and for all, and we praise him for the fact that we can now be with God at all times through the presence of the Holy Spirit, living inside followers of Jesus but we also look forward. We look forward to the day when Christ will come again and make all things new, the promised day when there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more fear, no more death, no more decay, and no more tears. It is a day when there will only be hope and comfort and joy and peace as we live in his presence forever. And in the same way that ancient Israelites looked forward to the promised Messiah, we look forward to the day when he will come again. And that should fill all of us with hope. Tomorrow's the first day of 2024. And more than likely, we all have hopes for what the year will hold. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we don't have to wait for a new year. We don't have to wait for a new month, a new week, or even a new day. We can find hope in the truth that through the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us now and forever. And that's why we gave out candles at our Christmas service and why we have them available in the lobby today. You see, there's nothing special about the candle itself, but it's simultaneously something tangible and metaphoric to serve as a reminder of Jesus' presence with us and also the truth that he is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. But it's also a reminder that he is the eternal light and that one day, one day, all who are followers of Jesus will reside with him in a restored creation where there's no more night, there's no more fear, there's no more decay. But as John tells us in the book of Revelation, that the light comes from him alone. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we anticipate when we share communion together. Gracious God, God, we cannot thank you enough for your finished work. Our words cannot express how grateful we are and our singing can barely scratch the surface of our love for you. And God, as we prepare to share this meal, I pray that your spirit will move in this place, that your word will will not return void, but will accomplish what you set it to do in the hearts of your people. God, thank you for taking our place. Thank you for making a way that we can be with you now and into all of eternity. We praise you for all of this. It's in your precious, powerful, and holy name, God, that we pray. Amen.